And hello from Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy, and especially this week, education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. I'm Clark Corbin. And we're really delighted to have a, a guest this week, uh, Jacqueline Kettler, an assistant professor at Boise State University in the political science department. Uh, thank you for joining us and for helping us kind of break down what happened in the elections last week and what, uh, what does it set the stage for as we move ahead uh, nationally and at the state level. So let me start with a basic question, but probably not a simple question. <laughs> we're, we're 10 days out from this, uh, from the results of the election. As you process it as a political scientist, what still surprises you about what we saw and what uh, maybe is uh, the the biggest unanswered question for you uh, sure. moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think um, many of us were surprised on election day, I think. Um, you know, previous elections, at least the last few election, presidential elections, we kind of had a good idea going into it, what would happen. But I think, I've seen some poll figures, like 85% of the population believed Hillary Clinton would win. Mm -hmm. So we came into this being relatively surprised um, the night of the election, which I think kind of resulted in people really going, oh my gosh, what just happened? Like, what, why were we so wrong about um, where the election, what was going to happen in the election? Why were we so surprised? Um, so I think we're still trying to figure out a little bit um, why did we have such a false um, idea of what was going to happen? And not just citizens, but the political campaigns as well. Right. I think um, Trump and Clinton are as surprised as the rest of us a little bit. Um, that's been evidenced as the somewhat rocky transition the Trump um, um, campaign is dealing with right now. Um, I think some of the unanswered questions are, um, you know, what happened in states like Michigan, um, Wisconsin, um, Pennsylvania were, was it polling problems? Was it strategic errors um, by the Clinton campaign to not focus enough there? Um, is it the Democratic Party having really problems connecting with some of these rural working class populations? Right. Um, and these will be key questions for not just um, those in campaigns and the parties, but um, for scholars moving forward as well. <laughs> so why were the polls so different than the result. I mean, I watched going into the final few days, and I was watching 538 very closely, uh, projecting anywhere from about a 70% on upward chance of Hillary Clinton getting elected. And they were criticized for being cautious with those numbers, and it turned out that 70% was, uh, was off base as well. So what happened here, do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. And as, what we're seeing is some of the polls were really accurate on predicting Clinton's popular vote. Um, it was for Trump where there were issues and in some of the states where there was issues that resulted in him winning those electoral votes, um, that was, which was not expected. Um, and, you know, I think we're still trying to sort through some of these things right now. There's some ideas that maybe there were, were some shy Trump supporters that just weren't willing to admit that they were going to vote for Trump. One idea is that maybe they just weren't reporting that they'd vote in the presidential election, um, but then when they were mobilized by perhaps congressional elections to go out and vote, they voted with their party. So we just were missing some of those Trump supporters in the polls. Maybe the polls just weren't, um, maybe the cell phone problem is really contributing to issues now mm -hmm. where we're just not getting a really good representative sample in our polls. Um, I, I don't think we have a great answer yet. <laughs> um, and I think that's something that we'll be working on for a while to try to figure out how to 
ensure? Because it sounds like the Clinton campaign moved resources around on the basis of some of those um, uh, polling figures to where she, they, her campaign didn't think they needed to spend more in states like um, uh, Ohio and things. So maybe that resulted in some error When surely they had in-house surveys that, uh, in-house polling data that probably suggested they were in better shape in a state mm -hmm. like Michigan or Pennsylvania yeah. to where they could move resources around. Yep, yeah, I think so. Um, and, and this isn't the first presidential, recent presidential campaign with that problem. Um, Romney's campaign made some strategic errors on the basis of some not great polling data, and McCain did as well. And so we're seeing this trend, which is kind of a good question for campaigns moving forward, is how reliant are they on polling data that um, some maybe we're having some issues with getting a really um, strong representative understanding from polls. Interesting. I, I suspect that it's a time of a little bit of soul searching in your profession mm -hmm. as it is in our profession. I mean, there are be a lot of questions about mm -hmm. the media's role yeah. in covering this election. And, and, and I suppose in the political science community, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, there were some models from political scientists that actually did very well. And those are based on fundamentals like the economy, um, the popularity of the current president, and how long um, the, party ha the current party has controlled the president which would have set it up to be a, a rough election for the Democrats and for the presidency since our economy was struggling and, and Obama had been in, 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 in uh, the presidency for eight years. Um, but even they kind of didn't believe their, their own results a little bit because once Trump was selected as the nominee, they just figured that um, it just wouldn't work this time. And so, yes, I think there's a little bit of soul searching on um, maybe at the first, should we even be forecasting? elections? Is this a role for scholars to be playing? Or is our role much more in the understanding element and trying to, to better understand behavior and outcomes? And so I, I agree. I think there will be some soul searching within political science community. Yeah, I'm one of those people that doesn't like it when you lump the media all under one umbrella and don't differentiate between uh, opinion pieces that are meant to uh, persuade people versus hard news versus clickbait versus social media versus entertainment. But I think under that large umbrella, I think there does need to be uh, some soul searching. I, I, I think that uh, the media wasn't skeptical enough of the polling. I don't think that they put that uh, in the proper mm -hmm. context to show people what probability really means. Mm -hmm. Nate Silver talked about this on Twitter the other day, but talking about if there's a 70% chance of an earthquake and then people saying, or a 70% chance of no earthquake, no, and people no earthquake. saying, oh, that's, that's way too low, that's way too low, and then the earthquake strikes, and then saying, oh, but you didn't warn us this would happen. So I think that there wasn't enough skepticism of polling, and uh, not enough explanation of what a margin of error mm -hmm. is. And if you look at some of those swing states, some of that was within the 2% yep. to 4%. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I don't think we did a good enough job of, of putting that into context and explaining it, and that's why we got this flawed narrative towards the end about how uh, Secretary Clinton was likely to win the White House and the Democrats were likely to take control of the Senate. That was obviously completely flawed, but I don't think there was enough skepticism of polling. We do have some good questions starting to come in on our Facebook feed now. Uh, one's from Allison, and this is also something um, that falls under the media umbrella that I think is going to be really important. But we talk about the issue of fake news uh, that yeah. has come up. Facebook and Google are wrestling with this this week. I think uh, all of media is wrestling with this, but the question is, many believe that alternative media outlets and social media was a powerful factor in the election. Uh, along with that, just some of the fake news, some of the biased news. Uh, what are our thoughts on that? Jackie, is that something um, that you've started to, to think about 
uh, when we think about some of the fake news, some of the biased alternative media outlets, or just some of the social media. Sure. Um, what are your thoughts on the role that may have played? Yeah, I mean, it, it's. I, mean, I think we're still at this point where it's hard to evaluate exactly what was what made a large impact. I will say some initial estimates from exit polls, which have their issues as well, um, suggest that over 90% of voters voted with their party identification, in which case, you know, most of them aren't going to be heavily involved, uh, impacted by, by media stories. They're going out and voting <coughs> as they would at any time. Um, I also think that some of the problem here, right, is how we interact with the news as citizens and that we do so in, in ways that usually support our own partisan or ideological uh, biases. And so we kind of seek out um, news that, that makes us feel good or supports our, our existing point of view. And in social media, that's really easy to do yeah. um, because you can kind of create your own bubble. Um, and so while the, I think these fake news and it's definitely a problem. It's unclear to me how, like, how much it would have impacted the outcome of the election. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, that's a good question to move forward. It's kind of hard to evaluate. I think it's one of those things that's tricky to really kind of um, figure out the type of impact. But it's definitely um, a problem that I think we'll need to go forward. But I also think citizens have to be a little bit responsible um, for part of the solution. Because you've had all these echo chambers that it mm -hmm. creates where people seek out and are consuming what they already mm -hmm. agree with. It's almost like giving yourself a little pat on the back. I feel this way, and here's this article that I've sought out that reinforces what I believe. Right, Kevin? Right, I think that's part of it. I, I think part of the fake news issue is also it's a community issue if you're in a social media community and we all are in our own in our own circles there is a role and a responsibility to play here i mean there are, there are on more than one occasion i've you know gone to friends of mine and said you know i've looked into that that is a fake story and people are receptive to that and saying well gee i guess i got had thanks for the heads up I, I don't feel like there are a lot of people in my circle who are willingly, willfully dispensing news that they know is fake, news that they know is bogus to try to advance a cause. So I think there's a, a role for everybody to play, starting with being a little bit skeptical and just kind of backtracking and looking to see who's the source of the, uh, the news that you're using and where it came from. And, it was, Who wrote it? It was interesting. I saw one of the dictionaries, the word of the year uh, is post-truth. Post They're talking about we live in a, a post-truth, kind of a Stephen Colbert truthiness uh, era where uh, the people are questioning, do the facts even matter? But uh, we had another great question on Facebook from earlier in the week that I wanted to get to. And I want to let people know, uh, if you're listening and watching this morning, if you do have a question, just type it right into the, uh, uh, the comment field on Facebook Live, and we'll try to take your question in the next couple minutes while we're on the air, but Jody earlier this week had a good question, and the question was, is it possible to understand why so many Idahoans will not consider candidates that are not Republicans? What is it that makes a voter vote for a particular candidate? So the Republican Party, uh, the Republican institution is extremely powerful in Idaho, Jackie. Donald mm -hmm. Trump carried uh, 42 of the state's 44 counties. Uh, Republicans extended their supermajority in the Idaho legislature, but what is it about the Republican Party uh, that is such a powerful factor in Idaho? And, and what do we know about the factors that make a voter vote for a particular candidate? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I kind of briefly alluded to it earlier, and that party ID is incredibly strong right now in the U.S. 
and it, it actually impacts a lot of the way we view even non-political things. We often kind of view it in a partisan lens. And so I think part of it's just that party ID has become very strong. And why, I mean, I think for Idaho, that you know, some of the dominant ideologies or views are things like smaller government or that individualism which fits well with the Republican Party, yeah. and so is going to drive support a little bit more for, for the Republican Party. Um, it's an interesting question that some other states are also dealing with. Um, for example, in Hawaii, the last Republican state senator lost, so their state senate is completely Democratic right now, which is kind of a weird um, uh, event. And so they're also dealing like, why won't people vote for Republicans? And so it is an interesting question, but at least here, I mean, we also have some districts that are heavily Democratic, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, in District 18, they didn't even have challengers. And so I think some of it's also we're just kind of um, polarizing ourselves into places that uh, where Democrat, Democrats are kind of gathering in some areas and, and uh, that may be, um, you know, challenging moving forward to, to challenging some of those Republicans in some other areas. It, it does feel like a big part of the Democratic Party's challenge in Idaho right now is to avoid being kind of pigeonholed mm -hmm. and geographically isolated to where it is a Boise party. I mean, it's not just that the Democrats only have 17 seats in a 105-member <laughs> legislature. It's the 12 of those 17 seats are in Boise. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. how does a party build out from a, a, a geographic base and try to become a viable statewide entity. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, starting local, you know, you have, you, I mean, you kind of, you have candidates running regularly in lots of races. Um, I mean, sometimes we have, especially at the state level, there's a lot of uncontested races. Right. And so while it can be hard, just find candidates to run and just to start helping people understand what the Democratic Party is about in Idaho. What are, are they, what do they support? What do they want to, what policy goals do they have? And um you just, I mean, it takes hard work to start building up um, more voters in some of these districts, but it takes having a candidate, I think, is kind of the first step, um, mm -hmm. just to ensure that um, you start helping people understand what the party is. And eventually it'll be, you know, like you can grow voters um, in some of these areas. Jackie talked about these uncontested races, and that's something that I was interested in and something that I followed a little bit, as we sort of alluded to, there's 105 seats in the Idaho legislature. All of those 105 seats expired this year, so in that sense, they were up for re-election. Uh, but this fall, in the most recent general election, something like 66 uh, of those 105 seats were uncontested. Uh, she mentioned there were uh, Democratic seats that were uncontested mm -hmm. here in the Boise mm -hmm. area. Right. I think of the uh, Democrats won 17 seats. I think six of those were uncontested. Mm -hmm. uh, so they really only had 11 Democratic lawmakers win election in the state of Idaho. But, um, you know, the big night for the Republicans for the GOP last Tuesday was not just limited to uh, the success that President-elect Trump achieved. The Republicans extended their supermajority in the state of Idaho, mm -hmm. right, Kevin? Mm -hmm. They picked up three seats in the Idaho House where the balance of power is now 59 Republicans 11 Democrats, and they picked up, and the Republicans also picked up one seat in the Senate, where the balance of power is 29 Republicans and six Democrats. So it, it was a, a, a big night uh, nationally and in Idaho uh, for the Republicans. But when we talk about the power of the Republican Party, you guys had mentioned it, right? But uh, there's a lot of independence uh, among Idahoans, mm -hmm. right? A lot of distrust of the government. 
especially the, the federal government. But we see that at the legislative session, right, Kevin? Mm -hmm. This independent streak, this distrust uh, of the government, do we not? Right. And, and while the raw numbers are really strongly in, in, uh, on the Republican side, I mean, the, the numbers in the legislature, the fact that the Republicans hold every statewide seat and every seat in, in the congressional delegation, this is still a party that's trying to find itself in Idaho. We're going to see that in the legislature in the next couple of years. There's still going to be a division between more moderate Republicans and more well, hardline conservatives. And we're certainly going to see that play out in 2018 in the, in the governor's race. It's already starting to you know, move in that direction. I mean, you can see the stage set for a real division between moderate Republicans as embodied by Lieutenant Governor Brad Little, more conservative Republican wing, you know, the Russ Vulture wing of the party, and we were expecting that Congressman Labrador is going to run for governor. That's been the, the hot rumor for a long time. So how does a party go through that process of definition or redefinition, and does that create any kind of opening for, for the Democrats as the Republicans are trying to find themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it's a, it's a challenge right now. And I mean, we're going to see this at the national level, too. The Republicans are going to have these divisions that are going to probably impact how they govern. And so um, we may see some similarities, perhaps, at the Idaho, the Idaho State Legislature and Congress and some of the in um, some of the issues or challenges they're facing. I think it, it results in um, the party leaders perhaps trying to be careful about what types of bills are considered to not bring, to not allow those divisions to be really strong or really come out on particular types of issues because it's going, it's more noticeable in some policy areas than others. And so there may be, so we may see a session that's kind of similar to last year, right? Where. Mm -hmm. Um, some issues really weren't heavily dealt with, probably to ensure the party stayed pretty cohesive in general. Um, but it does sometimes open up um, opportunities for Democrats to be effect to have play a role in the legislative process if they're kind of key votes um, that that can can play a role. And as well, if that if those divisions start leading to governance problems, that also opens up for the op party of opposition to start using that as a, as a message of why we need change. And, and uh, that can sometimes be effective for growing your base and, and growing your success. And we did have a, more of a comment rather than a question, but a comment from Diora was, except that the Democrats lost this election and get on with life. Sometimes you win and sometimes you lose, that's life. And, and I think that's a great point, but that's why we have these elections regularly, right? That, that's why uh, the people play uh, this role. It, it, uh, that would be a bad system of government if there was just one party in control and the, and the people didn't have a, a say, right? But that, that's why we have these elections, right? Yeah. Um, we're getting towards the, the end of our, our time here, so I want to let people know that if they have any final questions, ask it in the Facebook comment period or in the comment box, and we'll try to tackle it in the next minute or two. But, um, you know, based on this election, you guys were talking about it a second ago, but where do you think we go from here? Do, do you see uh, any interesting policy discussions at the state level or at the federal level um, as we move into the new year and, and as the new government uh, gets put in place? Well, it feels like as we get ready for the legislative session, I, I don't know yet how this is going to affect education debates. Mm -hmm. We will have a new House Education Committee chair. We'll find that out in a few weeks. We may have, who knows what happens in the leadership elections mm -hmm. uh, in a few weeks. I think the 
conventional wisdom is that the Medicaid expansion issue between what happened at the presidential level and what happened at the state level with a couple of you know, prominent Democrats who were very active and very vocal and very... Uh, were doctors. And were doctors who, who knew what they were talking about uh, on the Medicaid expansion issue and were very passionate about it, both uh, losing in, mm -hmm. in, in the election last week. So that feels like an obvious policy uh, implication from what happened last week. Education, I think we're still trying to find our way. Yeah, actually, the Medicaid expansion will be, or, and, and resolving the gap will be really interesting because, I mean, you could see a potential to say, well, we need to wait to see what happens at the federal level because there could be changes. So it may be an opportunity to kind of punt on the issue a little bit for now. Um, but it's an issue that a lot of people want to see resolved in, in citizens, not just, you know, like even Republican voters in the state, um, many of them report being concerned about the issue. So I do think it'll be really interesting to see what happens with that issue in the session. Let me ask a question on kind of the money aspect mm -hmm. of politics, because that's one of your areas of expertise, mm -hmm. and you spoke to uh, us at Idaho Press Club a few weeks ago about that. Any surprises in the, uh, in the fundraising, in the Sunshine Reports at the state level? Anything jump out at you? Um, I mean, you know, I, I haven't spent a whole lot of time going through them yet, just since we don't have the final reports in. You know, it, it's interesting. I mean, there were some really active Democratic groups um, in some of these or at least uh, there was the one, the education. Uh, there was one responsible leadership for yeah. Idaho was uh, was kind of the go-to. It yeah. seemed like it seemed like they were doing most of the most of the work for sure. a lot of Democratic candidates in the swing yeah. districts. Yeah. yeah, Kevin, we had a real interesting question just come in now on Facebook from Christina, uh, and we've covered this and we've talked a little bit about this. But the question is, any interesting bonds or ballot measures? Real quick, do you want to talk about CWI's bond, and then do you want to talk about that wonky, confusing uh, constitutional amendment that passed last week on Election Day? But uh, we did see an interesting bond with CWI, uh, but it failed, right, Kevin? Right. So to get people caught up on that, uh, the College of Western Idaho had a bond issue, $180 million uh, spread across two counties, and I believe they got about 57 59% of the vote. Yeah. Well short of the two-thirds majority, but a majority. What I find interesting about this, too, is that it kind of sets things up for uh, the news that came out of the Boise School District this week. Uh, Boise's going to seek $172.5 million uh, for a bond issue in March, a very different election, because mm -hmm. March, it's yeah. not the general election. Turnout will be way down. Turnout <laughs> will be a lot lower, yeah. and strategically, that might, might play in mm -hmm. Boise's favor. Yeah. And I know that the district has already kind of looked at what happened with the CWI bond issue. I mean, talked informally with Don Coberly, the superintendent, uh, earlier this week. Trustees were already looking at the CWI numbers, trying to figure out how did that bond issue play in Boise as opposed to Meridian, Eagle, Nampa, Caldwell, where it was also on the ballot. So yeah. we, then, we'll see. Yeah, so there was that bond issue that tees yeah. up the Boise School District bond issue for the spring nicely. Uh, but real quickly, there was a constitutional amendment proposed that passed last week. And this was all about the power of the legislature uh, to review and reject agency rules. Uh, but just briefly, why was that something important? Why was that something that may even affect 
education issues that you care about, Kevin? Well, let's do the 30-second rundown of what HJR5 is. And I think I can do it in 30 seconds, but it's, it's going to be a challenge. Okay. <laughs> Basically, the legislature has had the power to oversee and re review and reject agency rules for years. What this constitutional amendment does is it basically encrypts that power in the Constitution and it makes it that a, a court cannot overturn that right. Um, rules process can be very important. I mean, we've seen Common Core passed in the rules process. We've seen science standards rejected in the rules process. So it is a big deal, even though it's a very dense and arcane yeah. deal. But I was fascinated by some of the money in this race and, you know, a lot of Republican legislators, a lot of Republican leaders putting money into this campaign, the money then basically going from the group pushing for passage of the amendment back to the Republican Party, which did a lot of the direct mail in the days leading up to the election. It was an interesting process, and I don't know if that's something that uh, is unique uh, or it just kind of caught my eye because it was uh, so so complicated. Yeah. yeah, I think we actually see it happen pretty regularly in a lot of places, this type of, sometimes it just depends on who gets the money earlier and then they, they move it around later to where it might be needed. Um, and so in this case, yeah, you, I mean, as you noted, it was a lot of Republicans giving to the committee for the, the amendment and then they kind of moved it around later through the Republican Party. I mean, it's always hard to tell from one case exactly what was the motivating factor. Um, but we do sometimes see that happening just for where resources are, for who kind of already has, you know, relationships built up or things. Um, but it was interesting to see, I mean, it's a, about, it's a separation of power, powers debate, right? And so it's not surprising we saw a lot of Republican legislators um, involved in this, in the working towards for the amendment. Um, but it's always interesting when you have voters voting on something that's a separation of powers uh, debate. Yeah. And, and worth noting that you had two statewide Republican elected officials yeah. come out against HJR5, including okay. Governor Otter yeah. <laughs> and Attorney General Lawrence Wasden. So you had two very prominent yeah. Republicans saying, hey, wait a minute, we don't need this amendment. And at the same time, the party was playing a very prominent role yeah. in pushing for its passage. Yeah, it's quite interesting, uh, some of those those debates. Um, it's always, these measures are always just kind of strange. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I want to thank everybody uh, for joining us on Facebook Live today and listening to the Extra Credit Podcast. As always, our half-hour time window is up, so I want to really thank our guest, Jacqueline Kettler yeah, uh, from Boise here. State University. I had a lot of fun, and I hope that we can get together again maybe at the end of the legislative yeah. session and talk about some of the Idaho issues that come up uh, during this important legislative session that starts in January. So thanks to everyone. A special thanks to Christina, Jody, Allison, and Diora. Uh, who commented and asked questions on Facebook Live. We did this for you guys, and we would love to do more uh, Facebook Live Friday podcasts in the future. So reach out to us on social media if you enjoy uh, these events. Next week, Kevin, is Thanksgiving, so we're going to take a week off, but we will be back in two weeks with another audio-only edition of the Extra Credit And a lot podcast. to talk about, because that will be the week of the organizational session at the legislature. So all of these questions about who's going to be in charge of uh, the, the party caucuses, who's going to be in charge of the House Education Committee, 
I should be able to provide some answers. So you <laughs> and, want, to, you'll want to check that out in two weeks. If you're joining us for the first time today, uh, we do uh, at Idaho Education News publish the Extra Credit podcast every Friday afternoon. It's available for free through the iTunes store. Uh, if you stumbled across this by accident today and enjoyed what you've seen, you can follow at Idaho Ed News on Twitter and like Idaho Education News on Facebook. And if you go to www.idahoednews.org, we have daily coverage of education issues, of political issues, and we, uh, Kevin and I, will be at the legislature every day in 2017. Every day, we'll be there. all policy news out of the state house. But uh, once again, thanks to our guest, Jacqueline Kettler from Boise State University. She did an awesome job. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week and a good Thanksgiving.